We're in a moment right now of effectively full employment. That modality is what we should always be optimizing for. A full employment economy is one where employment levels translate into bargaining power for a wide swath of workers. The more people you fully include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows for everybody. And yes. that's what full employment is all about. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Goldie, I don't think there's been anything that has pissed me off more as we've <laughs> run through, you know, coming out of the uh, recession and seeing the phenomenal performance of this middle out economy than people like Larry Summers and other economists effectively calling for the Fed to create a recession and right. huge amounts of unemployment to deal with the problem that they call inflation. Why? Because a they're completely confused about what the problem is. The problem is not inflation. The problem is higher prices and raising interest rates is not going to solve that problem. It will probably prolong it and make it worse. Uh, but B, just the savage injustice of it all. The fact that the only policy lever we're willing to look at as a country to deal with higher prices is to throw millions of people out of work and hope that that decrease in demand will push prices down. You know, there are so many other things that you could do to address the issue of higher prices. This whole, you know, market fundamentalist, let the poor suffer, you know, reflex. It just, oh. it just drives me crazy. Oh, drives Nick, me crazy. Nick, there you go again, Nick, just hurting the people you're trying to help. I know. I, I mean, look, if if uh, if Larry Summers says we need seven and a half unemployment for a couple of years in order to get inflation under control, then, you know, that's just that's just what the economy needs. And that's yeah. what's best for the majority of the American people yes. is to have massive unemployment. Let's let's be clear, like twice the current rate, more yeah. than twice the current rate. Yes. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, we'll we'll never get a two dollar a gallon gas again, or something, or something, or something, or yeah. something. Yeah, it's it, it's been incredibly frustrating on a number of accounts, Nick, because uh, it seems like our economic, our elite, and by that I mean both the the people at the top of the economy and the economists themselves, the elite uh, economists, just can't get their heads out of the 1970s yeah. uh, that we had uh, that, that period of stagflation back then. And the cure, we don't know that it was the only cure. We just know that this is what appeared to work at the time was driving up uh, interest rates and causing a severe recession and having very high unemployment for a couple of years that 
created immense amount of misery in the American public. And yes, afterwards, you know, inflation did come down and we had several decades of relatively low inflation. And they, it's possible there was, that was the only thing that would have worked back then. We don't know that. That just happens to be what we did. But that doesn't mean that's what we need to do now. No. Absolutely not. And, you know, and, and Goldie, we're in a moment right now of effectively full employment. And by historical standards, by historical uh, standards, historically probably, low unemployment rates. Yeah. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that appears to be benefiting the majority of citizens. And I think there's a lot of arguments that can be made that 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 modality is what we should always be optimizing for a, a full employment economy. And today, on the pod, we get to talk to somebody who cares a lot about that because he works for an organization dedicated to a full employment economy. Our new friend, Arnab Dada, who is the senior counsel at Employ America, which is effectively single-mindedly focused on promoting policies that prioritize full employment. Which you'd think, Nick, would be universally a, considered a good thing, right? Yeah. Full employment? We no. want everybody to work? No, Both but, right and left would be no. satisfied by that? No, but for sure we're not. And, you know, it's, you know, obviously there's push and pull here, but I just, I feel really strongly that creating giant recessions to hold prices down is not great policymaking. And there has to be another way. So with that, let's talk to, let's talk to Arnab about what he thinks. My name is Arnab Data. I am the senior counsel at Employ America. Please check out our website if you get a chance. And we'll provide a link in the show notes. So tell us a little bit more about what Employ America does and how you define a full employment economy. So let me start with a full employment economy. I think sometimes there's a, a tendency of folks to try to you know, limit uh, full employment economy to some kind of a number. You know, if you're at X percentage unemployment or X percentage full, uh, you know, employment to population ratio, that's full employment. We tend to think about it a bit more conceptually, but essentially a full employment economy is one that where employment levels translate into bargaining power for a wide swath of workers. And, you know, when you see a full employment economy, you see a number of benefits. Um, so I, I talk about three generally. One is rising wages for all workers, particularly marginalized communities and workers, you know, low wage workers. Um, when you see more bargaining power, that bargaining power translates into better wages. Secondly, and I think a you know, related um, concept is that a full employment economy is one where there's better balance between workers and businesses. In a full employment economy, you tend to see that businesses have to compete for workers rather than workers having to just compete um, for jobs. And this tends to bring even more people into the labor market. One of my favorite kind of anecdotes about a full employment economy is, you know, before COVID at the tail end of 2019, um, employment levels were at such highs that businesses started to go to prisons to recruit for workers and offer them training. And you know that's the kind of thing that, that we love to see. Um, so that's the second. And then third, there's productivity benefits and growth benefits that come from a more you know, equitable um, full employment labor market. In some ways that you know, is intuitive and even pretty simple, but essentially 
when you're utilizing the full potential of the American labor market, if more people are in jobs that they like, they feel fairly compensated in for longer, they tend to be more productive over time. And so these are really the benefits of a full employment economy. And that's what Employ America does and what we strive for. So writ large, we focus on the macroeconomic policies that matter for full employment. And I think there's two buckets that we kind of put our work into. Um, one is on the demand side. So there's you know mon monetary policy at the Fed. That's always active, one where we're really pursuing, you know, pushing them to ensure that they're meeting the employment part of their dual mandate. And then also there's fiscal policy um, that can lead to more demand. And so I think in the context, for example, of recessions, something we really care about is, you know, preventing recessions, but also making them not too painful. When COVID hit, we worked a lot on the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan. So, you know, I had been working on unemployment insurance for quite some time. So that was the demand side. And then the other bucket is on inflation. There's some folks, you know, folks like Larry Summers, for example, who seem to think that the best way to bring inflation down is for the Fed to throw millions of people out of work. We really reject that thesis. We think that, you know, we should look at what's really causing inflation and keep prioritizing workers' outcomes and making sure they're on a positive trajectory. And there's actually a lot of places where the federal government has authorities that it can utilize to manage inflation um, without throwing millions of people out of work. That's a great overview, Arna. Uh, and we're going to come back to inflation. But, you know, one of the things that uh, confuses me a little bit, and I suspect confuses many of our listeners, is the relationship between the unemployment rate and the labor participation rate, right? So there is this apparently group of people who are not in the labor market, and then all of a sudden come into the labor market. And when they do, they can effectively drive up the unemployment rate or down, as the case may be. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think the important way to think about it is that there are a lot of different ways to measure the health of the labor market, and you can see exactly the the dynamic that you described. That there are reasons why people get pulled into the job search, right? And these are you know surveys that happen over time, and so in any given month, you could see um, fluctuations where an unemployment rate goes up because the labor market is so attractive that it's drawing people in and it takes some time to find a job. And so, you know, we tend to take a pretty holistic view and look at all the data to try to get a sense of what the employment rate is looking, um, what employment levels are looking like. But can you can you just give us an example or some examples of what it is when somebody is not in the labor market? You know, there are for any number of reasons. So, um, you know, and I, I, I focus a lot more on kind of our um, on our policy side. This is um, something I think my, my colleagues spend a bit more time on. But when you look at the, the data that BLS collects, you know, this is a function of surveys and, and other data. But someone can be of prime age, but they're, they're not searching work for some reason. They've basically said, you know, I'm not employed and I'm not looking for work. And that person is classified as, as out of the labor force. So they don't count towards the unemployment rate. But if you look at something like employment to population ratio, they are in that. And so because they're in the, in the denominator there, the population. And so that's kind of how someone, you know, can be outside of the labor force, even if their age and other factors might, you know, 
might be counted as if they were. And, and so statistically speaking, the only time you enter the labor market is it when you effectively make yourself, quote unquote, unemployed and start looking for work actively. Yeah. Or you enter or you get a job, you know, you immediately start looking and you look. For, but you then you never were unemployed. Yeah. And in, in some sense, it can happen. Yeah. OK. Interesting. So a, a, a good example would be during the pandemic, uh, a lot of women dropped out of the labor force because they didn't have child care. Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a challenge that you see a lot of these demographic challenges over time, right? This is one reason why things like childcare are, are are really important. And yeah, you do tend to see, you know, even, I mean, during COVID, this isn't um, necessarily even as, as gendered a thing, but a lot of people dropped out because they had to care for people, period, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether it was children or not. And so there's a lot of challenges with really interpreting all of this data and, and kind of putting a whole whole picture of it together. That's a lot of the, the work that my colleagues do. Right. And, and, and of course, to complicate these matters, it's not like it's not like they weren't doing work. I mean, had had they right. had child care available, somebody else would have been working to take care of their children. And that would have counted as a job. Whereas when you drop out to take care of your own children because the child care centers are closed and the schools are closed, then that's a loss of a job. Yeah. And, it, you know, in some ways, look, there's there's challenges with all data. But this is one of those places where, you know, in survey data, for example, people aren't always as precise to think about their things in the same way that survey people do. I think they I think a lot of this data is collected very thoughtfully and, and they do a good job. But there are challenges with a lot of those things. And that's why we try to look at the trends more than um, any given month, for example, because there's a lot of a noisy, a lot of noisy things that can happen with the data on a given month. Yeah. Can you speak to the relationship between employment or unemployment and productivity? Yeah. So essentially, there's a couple of things that happen, I think, when when you think about productivity, you know, one one is what I mentioned, which is that workers who spend more time, you, you actually tended to see this at the um, tail end of kind of the last big labor market boom we had um, at the tail end of the 1990s, where we had a pretty tight labor market for some time. And workers just, you know, learn things in their jobs when they're employed for a long time and they tend to get better at things and and find ways to improve productivity and you don't you don't see that as often when when people aren't employed for as long so there's one piece of it that's that and then you know when employers also have to compete for workers or when they can't always you know when you have more employment you need to find other ways to find growth and productivity. And so it actually pushes employers to invest more in certain types of productivity. And you see that happen and, and the fruits of that can take time to bear, but as a, as a full employment economy continues for longer and employers tend to invest more in some of those productivity gains, um, they happen over, you know, over some period of time. Yeah, this is um, one of the things that sort of drives me crazy about, you know, the recent um, hand-wringing over the decline in productivity in the United States, uh, because to me, it's it, it, you can account for a hundred percent of it with the fact that we've had really weak labor markets for 30, 40 years, right? With a couple of tiny uh, exceptions, because again, as a person who runs businesses sort of for a living, th the case you just made conforms exactly to what my experience is. If 
there are zillions of unemployed people and it's super easy to find people and pay them poverty wages. Why would you invest in labor-saving processes or equipment? And by the way, if, if labor is cheap enough, you're just not, nobody's under a lot of pressure to figure out how to do it faster, better, cheaper. Right? Exactly. And, yeah. you know, because the, you know, the neoliberal decades have been ones of, you know, ba- basically characterized by high un- relatively high unemployment rates, high unemployment rates, and uh, and, all sorts and, of wage suppression. Wage right? arbitrage. Yeah, yeah, right? Where, <laughs> you know, if the $2.13 per hour minimum wage for tip workers isn't low enough for you, well, you could go overseas or, or whatever it is, right? Like, and, you know, that accounts for why productivity gains in the United States fell as we exited the decades before the neoliberal era. It just seems super obvious. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I, I, I you know, share what you, with your private sector background. You know, one thing we try to think about a lot is like, what is actually encouraging businesses to invest? You know, how are they kind of overcoming the hurdle rates that tend to be pretty high and sticky? And that's one good example. If there isn't much of a payoff to investing in some kind of technology, for example, that might make you more efficient, you're not going to do it. What's what's the point? You know, what's the point, especially if this stuff is pretty capital right. intensive? And that's, you know, that's kind of the benefit you, you tend to see where um, in a full employment economy. Yeah. But making processes more efficient and effective is always capital intensive, uh, whether you're buying new equipment or not, right? Because any kind of process to make it work better requires, it takes a heck of a lot of energy uh, Mm -hmm. to reconstitute a process that has been in place for a long time and try to squeeze more out of it. Train people on it. That's all time. Exactly. All of that is time. My gosh, you know, it's super hard to do that. And it, it, and it, you know, it's hard to do it in all sorts of ways. So again, you know, if, if, if there's no real return on that investment, people don't do it. It's so interesting, Arna, because um, this week, uh, some of our team were in a call with uh, some of the legislative leaders in the, in the state of Washington talking about, you know, the opportunities for making improvements in economic policy in the future. And one of the things that these folks raised, so interesting that we have not heard very much before, is the challenges that they are hearing in every corner of our state and from every sector about workforce, about how hard it has become for businesses to find enough people to do what needs to get done. You know, I've run, again, I've run lots of businesses and it sucks when it's hard to find people, but that is a high quality problem. Right. That 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 is the kind of problem on balance that we want to have in this country for a very, very long time, because what that means is that, you know, businesses will be required to offer people more money. They will pay a premium to ensure that they stay for a long time and they will invest in their processes and their businesses to try to make them more productive and efficient all of which is to the good. But yeah. Nick, they might Absolutely. not be able to do as many stock buybacks. That's true. You will, you, it will be much harder to do <laughs> stock buybacks in that environment. Um, 
But I think, you know, a trillion dollars a year in stock buybacks is what accounts for why productivity rates have been so low in the United States. If that money had gone into, lay, in, into wages and investments in productivity, increasing processes and equipment, then we'd have higher productivity rates. Yeah, I think it's a really, you know, I, I, I tend to, you know, we tend to try to think about what are the outcomes we're seeking here. And if we're thinking about, you know, even if you're, let's say, someone from, let's say, the right or the center, you know, I know you guys have had Orrin Cass on, on your show before, um, folks like, like thinking about what's going to generate more investment and more employment in the economy. Like, these are really important questions that we should be very rigorous about. I think there's a tendency to you know, take some of these paradigms from the Econ 101 textbooks and just apply them as like, well, if this happens, then this will happen and this will happen. And we try to take a really thoughtful approach of like, what's actually happening here? And how can we, how, you know, what does the evidence show? And how can we ensure kind of the most positive policy outcomes dependent on what's, what's happening? Really, isn't the goal of the economy 2% inflation, regardless of how we get there and how much misery we create in the process? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think uh, I think that is a that is uh, that is certainly not the goal that we see. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to talk about that just for a moment because uh, you had brought up Larry Summers uh, earlier, and you know he infamously said we we couldn't get inflation under control without two years of seven and a half unemployment. Yeah, it turned out he was wrong. I'm old enough to uh, remember the '70s and the '80s. And uh, we seem to have been, uh, the Fed seems to has, ha, have been running itself based on what Paul Volcker did back then. How much of the problem is priority? I mean, I know allegedly the Fed has this uh, dual mandate on inflation and unemployment, but it always seems to be sacrificing employment on behalf of inflation as if inflation is the more important number. Yeah, look, I think that whether it's rational or not, there is certainly a generation of, you know, policymakers and Fed policymakers who look to the experience of the 70s and 80s and think this is, you know, the most painful outcome, right? And we we kind of ignore, you know, interestingly, even now, we still ignore the growth that came out of the Great Recession, the mm -hmm. anemic growth that came out of the Great Recession. And really, like, the generational effects that that high level of unemployment had are, are staggering. You know, things that we're still wrestling with today, you know, in economic outcomes and political outcomes, there's a lot of really, really nasty stuff that came out of um, that slow recovery. And, you know, part of our work is really thinking more deeply about what's what's actually driving inflation right now. You know, the fa I think the fact that we had you know, a lot of people would go back and we're going back then to this huge wave of economic uh, stimulus that we had going back to the CARES Act and then the follow up bills to that and then the American Rescue Plan as like the reason why we have high inflation. And I think when you do a bit more you know, rigorous analysis on that, that story doesn't really hold up super well. I think the reality is we had this huge inflationary episode coming out of a once in a generation pandemic when we stopped an economy. You know, we stopped the largest economy in the world, essentially, and every other economy um, went through some version of that as well. And it's it's kind of, I think, naive to think that um, we're going to come out of that without some 
bottlenecks and some challenges that emerge. And so a lot of our work is really trying to push push the federal government to think a bit more thoughtfully about what are more equitable ways to bring down inflation that don't rely on throwing millions out of work. Yeah. And, and the Fed should be part of that, you know, looking at what's happening in the economy right now and really trying to understand is the blunt tool that they have really the appropriate one for what's happening in the economy right now. I think, you know, one example is housing, right? If we're worried about housing prices and inflation um, down the line, you know, is keeping interest rates at a pretty high level going to help that as we kind of get through this last mile, whether it's, you know, getting back to 2% or not, that's a challenge that we have to think about the long-term effects of as well. Yeah. I mean, we've we've often talked on the show about confusing inflation, which is a wage price spiral, with higher prices, which is what we have, that we're a consequence of the global supply chain shock. And raising interest rates is probably the opposite of what you want to do to sort out a global supply chain shock. But, you know, yeah. if you're the Fed and your only tool is interest rates, everything looks like a nail, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like all they know how to do is raise rates. And so they're trying to be, they're, they're, in, a, they're in a search for relevance. And, you know, it's a, it is absolutely true of the Fed, but it's, to be honest, it's true of policymakers more generally who look to the Fed and say, like, that's, you know, inflation is their problem, right? Like, I'm going to focus on what I can. And that's really a paradigm that, that we need to shift, right? That there are more equitable ways to bring down inflation and that, you know, their tool is oriented for a very, very specific challenge that we are, we're simply not in at the moment. That's right. Yeah, I've got a, a, a question about that, about what the Fed did and whether it actually had any impact, because we know its ultimate goal was to bring down inflation, but its proximate goal was to drive up unemployment. And it failed at that. Is this just a unique economy we're in now? Or that tool, that hammer that the Fed has, does it not work any more like it did in 1980 because the economy is so different, is less capital intensive. Yeah, you know, I uh, I, I want to be careful here um, for for a couple of reasons. I think one thing to just keep in mind is like the story isn't over yet, you know, and right. and the Fed acts with consider, you know, the the effects have considerable legs. Sometimes we are in a very, you know, there there are a lot of things um, happening in the economy that you know, have not happened in quite some time. And I think we need to be, you know, very sober about that. So I think I would say, you know, first off the bat, you know, we still, it's still yet to see what the long-term kind of impact of where the Fed has taken us um, has gone. But I would say, um, you know, I think there's no doubt that certainly at, at, at the margin, there's there's an impact that the Fed had. But whether it's the real defining, you know, the the most important part of this story I think that's a tough case to make. If you look at the sources of disinflation over the past couple months and you know going back to last six months um, to a year, it's, it's really a supply side. A lot of it is a supply side story. And I don't think there's a, a strong case that you can make that that supply side story happened because Fed interest rates, because the Fed um, raised interest rates. I think it's a, a more a function of 
a lot of the investment that we saw in the economy, both as a result of um, you know some pretty historic bills that passed in different in different sectors, but also just kind of a normalization, you know, some response to demand and and different things like that. So I think I think it's a hard story to say that the Fed was responsible for most of the disinflation that we've seen over the past um, past six months or so. Tell us about the glorious future. Like, what kind of economy should we be optimizing for? You know, I, I think, first of all, you know, right now, our biggest thing is we need to make sure that the Fed doesn't break the labor market. Our, our <laughs> goal is um, trying to make the case that the Fed should not break the labor market, that we should not have a recession, and that we should kind of capitalize on this big jobs boom that we have. You know, we try to be pretty forward looking as well. The economy is just going through a lot of changes right now, particularly as it relates to the energy transition. Um, that's something that's going to be uneven, shaky, you know, with new bottlenecks, new potential sources of inflation as we try to get supply for different things online. And if we're not careful about managing that transition effectively, I think we could really, really have some challenges going forward. Kind of perversely, you know, as as we're navigating those challenges, the Fed is, you know, trying to limit inflation through interest rates, and it's going to end up limiting the productive investment that we're hoping for in the very places that we need to invest and manage that transition. So I'll talk about just kind of two examples um, of things that, that we've been thinking about in the context of the energy transition. One supply bottleneck is in lithium. Um, and critical minerals. So we put together a proposal for creating a strategic lithium reserve in the similar similar vein to the strategic petroleum reserve, something we've done some work on as well, that would be integrated with the market. And essentially, you could have a mechanism for the federal government to, to more stably manage prices and and still generate a lot of investments so that we have the supply that we need of lithium. Um, so that's kind of, you know, commodities are a place where the market doesn't work particularly well. You know, the Econ 101 textbooks of price and supply and demand, you know, those models just don't work. You know, investment doesn't always follow high high price increases. You don't like to see high price increases for this stuff. So we think that's like a place where the federal government should use its authority to kind of manage what is a pretty poorly functioning market when it comes to optimal social outcomes. Another thing we've been doing, you know, we've got a series um, on our website on geothermal energy that is um, focused on how do we kind of commercialize geothermal energy. The next generation of geothermal energy really, it takes a lot of learnings from the shale revolution. And one thing that happened with the shale revolution was it, it really accelerated dramatically in terms of production at a time of very low interest rates at the tail end of the 2000s. And like, we don't have that now. So understanding that we are not in a low interest rate environment, how are we using policy, fiscal policy, um, regulatory policy more effectively to ensure that we can commercialize you know, an industry like that that could be really transformative to the energy transition? So those are a couple of things we're thinking about. So a couple of final questions. First, the benevolent dictator question. If you were in charge of the economy, politics aside, what would you do? If I were in charge of the economy, what would I do? Um, what would you do? What are the things that you would do? 
So I, I'll, I'll, I'd love to make a plug for a bill that I've worked on for a couple of years. Um, it's called the Industrial Finance Corporation Bill. It was introduced by Senator Chris Coons, co-sponsored by another, another you know, six or seven um, Democrats as well. And what that would do is it would create a government corporation kind of in the vein of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation to target supply chain bottlenecks that are related to you know, kind of industries of the future to ensure that if we're going to be a leader in kind of commercializing industry, um, next generation industries, we need a nimble federal government corporation that can deploy capital a bit more effectively. So that's a bill that, you know, I would love to see see pass because I think we are going to need, you know, essentially like a, a federal reserve, but for fiscal policy that can deploy capital um, more effectively and kind of be, I guess, removed from some of the the nasty like political <laughs> challenges that we're seeing now. Um, so yeah, that would be that would be my number one thing. Oh, that's great. And one final question: Why do you do this work? I I'll give you I'll give you a couple reasons. I think first and foremost, I get to work with incredible people um, at Employ America. We have a really awesome team, people that I learn a lot from. Um, we get to work on creative problems and and being able to like bring a great work with a great team of people to like think about difficult challenges is just really fun. I really enjoy it. I think second, you know, I, I'm a lawyer and I think I, I really enjoy the problem solving aspect of like taking different authorities and different things and trying to find a solution to a problem. That's just generally. Um, very fun. And sorry, one third one is like, I think our work has real impact on people's lives and making it better. And that's kind of why I got into policy work more broadly. So I enjoy that. Well, fantastic. Thank you for being with us, Arnab. Thank you. uh, The work sounds great. We wish you the best. Thank you very much. I'm not sure, Nick, that we've had a more middle-out conversation on this podcast than we've had today, Yeah. Uh, because no, what sure. we always say is that the more people you fully include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows for everybody, and yes. that's what full employment is all about. Right. It turns out that when you have full employment... When, when more people are employed, the economy grows faster, wages grow faster, productivity grows faster. What more could you want from an economy? Yeah, well, uh, an endless supply of cheap, exploitable labor to drive profits up and, <laughs> and Once again, bonuses. I, I apologize for being so self-centered and <laughs> not seeing it from the plutocrat's yeah, point of view, yes, exactly. Nick, that the, the owners of capital... Yeah, uh, are disadvantaged and- <laughs> uh, that we are disadvantaged <laughs> by a full employment economy because you know paying people more is God, it's just terrible. Yeah, it dri- drives you nuts, doesn't it? And and the other thing to point out about this is that I, I know some people might listen to us and think we're a couple of uh, lefties. You, a class trader, me, a uh, socialist, that one of those socialists that uh, Donald Trump promises to crush in his next term. But the truth is there's nothing more pro-market than the arguments that Arnab made today. Yes, absolutely. Um, that, in fact, what's happening is you are allowing the labor market to work better. 
Yes. That you have less of a power imbalance. There's always a power imbalance between capital and labor for reasons that even Adam Smith points out uh, in The Wealth of Nations, that the employer can outlast uh, the, the employee because they have more resources. Uh, whereas the needs of the, the worker is more immediate because they need to feed themselves and their families. But when you have this uh, this full employment economy, uh, workers have more power. They can demand higher wages. Uh, they can uh, demand better working conditions. They have more job security. They have more time on the job, longer tenure to learn their job better so they can be more productive uh, workers. This is a labor market working the correct way. Yes. You, you, you have a competitive market in which there's uh, more equal competition between workers and capital. Yeah. Uh, instead of having workers compete against each other uh, in a downward spiral. And that is the way the market a market is supposed to work. That is markets doing their job. Correct. And, you know, again, the only the only folks who don't benefit from that arrangement are the owners of capital with um, a short term focus. R right. Right. It does work yeah. for them in the long run because of a, course. A, a, yeah. a healthy economy is good for capital. Yeah. It just doesn't allow yeah. them to both uh, maximize their short-term profits. Yeah. And also, I think, honestly, there's a certain amount of sociopathy there. They uh, they want to have more power over yeah, workers because they sure. just enjoy having power. Yes, it is true. Well, super interesting conversation and, and just totally reinforces the basic idea that a thriving middle class causes economic growth. Right. And again, there are links in the show notes to uh, Employ America and uh, some of the stuff they've written on this matter. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.